Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh um, Legal Eagle Clark. There's Chuck. uh, Deborah Winger. Man, that was going to be Jerry's. Oh, okay. All right, well, Jerry can be Robert Redford. So Chuck, Deborah Winger, Bryant, and then Jerry, uh, Robert Redford, Roland. And this is Stuff You Should Know. I never saw that movie. Really? Yeah, it's just one, you know, I was kind of too young for a legal procedural, mm-hmm. I think, and then I just never caught up to it. Not just a legal procedural, uh, a romance one, too. Yeah, boring. I saw it a bunch of times when I was younger for some reason. I guess my mom must have been into it or something. I was just along for the ride. Right, exactly. Yeah. But it was good if I remember correctly. Great cast. uh, Yeah, it was a good cast. I mean, you can't go wrong with either one of those two, you know? Wasn't there a third? Uh, Legal Eagles 3, Olympus (laughs) Has Fallen. I think is what it was. Wasn't there a third person in that... (laughs) Wasn't it a romantic triangle, or am I just uh, making that up? I don't know. I, I don't. I think you're thinking yeah, of the thing. last days of disco. I'm looking now. Daryl Hannah's on the cover. So, oh yeah, um, she might have been popped in for a tasteful nude. Then I, she probably plays a big role. <laughs> she convulses on the floor. <laughs> um, you know who she's married to, right? No, Neil Young. I didn't know that. I could totally see that now that you say it, though. Yeah, they're the reason that Neil Young and David Cross, or David Cross, that'd be funny. David Crosby don't speak to each other anymore. Why did did uh, David Crosby used to like Daryl Hannah? No, he's a, he's just a big jerk, and he like said something about her in an interview that wasn't nice. Like right when they got together, and jeez, Neil Young's problem like dead to me. He's huh. he's a notorious jerk. I didn't even know that, but yeah. I could kind of see it. Yeah, you know, he, he admits it. That's even worse. I think that's worse. People who are like, I'm just a I'm just a jerk, deal with it. It's like, no, why don't you change your personality a little bit to conform a little better to the rest of our expectations, you SOB. Well, let me rephrase that. He and this is all coming from the, the great, great documentary about him, recent one. He is he admits it and has deep regrets over how he treated people. Oh, well that's good. So he's that's an old good man. Contrition. Now who, yeah, he who regrets his behaviors. That makes it easier to kick somebody when they're down. You know, if they're like, deal with it, you can't bring them down to your level and kick them. Yeah. But if they're like, I really regret everything, you'd be like, yeah, you should. Right. Really rub it in, you know? <laughs> Especially if he's an old man. <laughs> sure. Exactly. So, um, obviously, today, Chuck, we're talking about class action lawsuits. I think anybody who could read the stuff you should know, tea leaves. Mm-hmm. Could have discerned that, or they could have just looked at the title of the episode. Yeah, uh, you know something that it occurred to me while we were doing researching this, like mm-hmm. most, or I don't know about most, but many people listening to this show have maybe even unknowingly been a part of a class action lawsuit. Sure, I know I have. I have too. I've gotten those little emails that say, you know, you got seventy five cents coming to you from whatever. Right. You're like every bit of your personal information was stolen in right. an Equifax breach. So Equifax is going to give you some identity theft uh, protection. Right. Or a discount, which is that's always the rub. 
Yeah, a lot of people probably have been a part of a class action lawsuit. And you may not have been, may not have paid attention to it. Uh, you may have gotten one of those things in the mail and just been like, "What is this? Who cares?" Or even if you read the fine print, you might have been like, "This is literally not worth my time and responding for." But there's a lot of things that happened in the fa- by, by um, virtue of you not responding to whatever card or something you saw, or even like a, a ad on TV apparently qualifies as notifying somebody that, hey, you may be a member of this class action lawsuit. Yeah, I um, this kind of came up recently in my life in that I've mentioned before that I'm on a Facebook page of a community in rural Georgia, mm-hmm. where I have some land in rural Georgia. And uh, there are some uh, Donald Trump supporters that were pretty upset that were asking if they could bring a class action lawsuit to overturn the election, uh, presumably because they don't like the result. But I, I didn't get involved. I didn't jump in there and say, you know, you like what kind of damages are you going to prove or whatever? Because sure. um, I think it would be interesting to try and prove emotional and psychological damage mm-hmm. uh, for an election result. That would be an interesting case. But that is, I mean, Short-lived. that is, it, it, it would be. Like most of the cases around the election, it turns out. But with the um, with with that though, like you've kind of hit upon a few things here. The, the idea that there's a group of people who were wronged in some way, in mm-hmm. similar ways, who on their own might not get anywhere with the case, but collectively, like pooling together their their resources um, or their the the multiple harms done, um, like taking those individual harms and turning them into one big mushy pile. That's the basis of a class action lawsuit, and it really kind of gets to the heart of why they exist, and that is that a lot of times um, you're suing like a, like a big, giant corporation with enormous resources at their disposal that can fight mm-hmm. you all day long until not only does the lawsuit go away, but you don't have any money left. And when you really look at it at the end of the day, you might have really just been after hundred or a thousand or even ten thousand or even a hundred thousand dollars worth of damages, which might seem like a lot to you, but might actually be less than the amount that you would spend on that case. And so when you when you face those kind of odds, that kind of challenge, you're just not going to file that suit. Any reasonable reasonable person wouldn't file a lawsuit like that. But the problem is, is if that's the case, then that means that giant corporations who are doing ill stuff um, can just keep doing ill stuff, which is sure. a new phrase I'm, I'm working on. I'm taking I it think, out for a walk right I now. I think the Beastie Boys coined that term. <laughs> okay. Well, then this is an homage to the B-Boys. But the, the idea that 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 if, you know, people are just going to let them get away with it because it, it's like they can't afford the court fees, that's a problem, which is one of the big things that, that is one of the big benefits that class action suits provide is you can take all those separate people, put them together, and now all of a sudden you have a formidable opponent. Yeah, and it's obviously a part of civil law as opposed to criminal law mm-hmm. um, where I mentioned you have to have some sort of uh, injury. It could be physical, it could be emotional, psychological, obviously financial. Uh, and it's what's known as a device in civil litigation. Uh, and all that means is sort of that it doesn't really it, – it's sort of the same thing as any other civil case, but it just allows multiple people to take part. And, you know, we'll go over all the little minor differences, but it's sort of like treating that big body of people as a single plaintiff. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, they do have to even have a representative plaintiff. Like it can't be, you know – 
all Volkswagen owners versus Volkswagen, mm-hmm. it it would be, and of course we'll talk about that real case, but um, I'm just making this up. It would be Josh Clark versus Volkswagen, and then <gasps> Josh Clark would have a million angry Germans standing behind him. Do I win? <laughs> In this in this theoretical lawsuit, tell me what's the outcome. I shouldn't have picked Volkswagen because that was a real case that we'll talk about. But uh, okay. let's say it was oh I don't know uh, a Yugo, Josh Clark versus Yugo. Okay, remember those I cars? Think, yeah, sure. I don't think Yugo was trying to advertise itself as anything but Yugos. That was no, their whole true. shtick. Yeah, you know? they were super cheap. You don't see those on the road much anymore, do you? Oh no, I think uh, after just a couple of years, you stop seeing those on the road. But yeah, you have a representative plaintiff or a lead plaintiff, and theirs is the name that appears on the case, even though, and and we'll learn later too, that they, in fact, also, they get a little bump, get a little extra money for being the lead plaintiff. Yeah, so they do get a little, because they're the ones who have to go through all this stuff. They might have to show up to court. They're the ones who have to coordinate with the lawyers. They're the ones actually suing. But the thing is, is if you show up and say, I am uh, a... Uh, we'll we'll take a we'll take a, a recent example. I I use Johnson. I'm a woman here in this in this situation. Okay. Uh, I have a vagina, and every day for 50 years, I've been using Johnson and Johnson's baby powder on my vaginal region, and as a result, I have ovarian cancer. And the doctors have said, yeah. Talcum powder is really bad for you. Johnson & Johnson's known this forever, but they just didn't tell anybody. Um, so I want to sue Johnson & Johnson. And it, the legal offices that I walk into and say this to, the, first of all, the lawyer's going to jump up and click his heels and then say, mm-hmm. I'm very sorry that this is happening to you. But the lawyer will probably think, you know, there's a lot of people who use Johnson's and Johnson and Johnson's baby powder. I wonder if there's anybody else like you. We'll start to do research, and all of a sudden, your one lawsuit is going to include a lot more people, and will probably become certified as a class action lawsuit. But you, the person who initially filed this, will remain that representative plaintiff. Yeah, boy, I got to say that that story had a lot of emotional peaks and valleys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm doing much better now, by the way. Good. I'm glad. Thank that you for the okay well down there. Yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, it does usually, but not always, uh, because there are also cases like uh, Enron, which we'll talk a little bit about. But mm-hmm. a lot of times it involves product liability. Um, when Bridgestone, Firestone had uh, stuff going on there in the early 1990s. Right. And I guess for a decade, uh, the U.S. came down and the judge said from anyone who had a car owned or leased 91 through 2001, if you had a Ford Explorer during those years, then you are part of this class. They call that the class. Right. And then uh, the attorney who represents that class, um, we'll talk about how they get selected. They are many times referred to as class counsel, mm-hmm. which sounds very much like some middle school title that you would run for or something. But whenever we say class counsel, just think that's the attorney representing all these people. Right. You're um, the class. Yeah. So you want to take a break and then talk a little bit about the the history of this stuff? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Stop 
You should know. So, Chuck, you said that um, class action lawsuits are, are a type of civil law, right, which is not yeah. criminal law. But even more specifically than that, um, because they're a part of civil law, they're actually based on common law, which is the, the legal body that's been formed over the centuries, starting in England. And even further back than that, it turns out the Vikings are really the first court that was ever set up in Europe. Um, that they actually started a lot of the legal precedent that made its way over to England that in turn made its way over to America. So uh, helmet tip to the Vikings for all that. But um, the co- the common law is like the, the sum of all the judicial decisions made over those centuries that set precedent that was built on and expanded on and refined. That's common law. And common law um, is the basis of originally of hearing um, these kinds of cases, uh, which are uh, class action lawsuits. Yeah, and these, they didn't call them class action suits in 1125, Mm -hmm. but they had them and it wasn't, you know, thousands of people against a tire company. It was a few people, but uh, in England, they allowed a handful of people to get together occasionally in in the village. Yeah. And... You know, maybe I'm not sure. I didn't really find why exactly they did this initially. My guess would just be efficiency of the court, maybe early on. Yeah. Um, which is sort of how it still is in a lot of ways, uh, rather than trying thousands of cases or even hundreds of thousands of cases. Yeah. You can just get everyone together in one room. And that's what they did in England. They allowed a few people to file a single complaint against the court. And this kind of carried over over the years, eventually into colonial America, uh, along with some other stuff uh, dealing with law. Like like you said, a lot of it sort of – some didn't stick, some did. Yeah, no, there's like a, a period apparently from about the middle of the um – I guess about the 1500s, no, the 1400s to the middle of the 19th century, where this just kind of went away in England, but it it persisted in colonial America um, and then carried on and then went back to England uh, and found purchase in about the middle of the 19th century in England's equity courts, which is a specific kind of court. It's now part of regular civil court now, but for a little while, it was its own thing, where if, say, like um, you hired a tin Smith to make a gravy boat for you in like 1758. Mm. Um, you you would take that guy to civil court if he if he gave you one that was like you know only half of a gravy boat. You couldn't hold gravy in it. So uh, what are you going to do with this thing? Um, it, it's totally useless. So you take the tinsmith to court. Well, you would probably expect money for damages, the money that you gave him returned to you, civil court would handle that. If you wanted to, say, make the tinsmith finish the job to complete this this gravy boat, then you would probably take him to equity court. Equity court was court that had to do with everything except monetary damages or criminal court. It was the creative kind of court where it really kind of called on a judge's um, fairness and imagination to solve whatever problem was brought before it. And this, these equity courts, like we said, or like I said, um, were, were eventually fused into regular civil court, but they are where our understanding, like the modern understanding of class action lawsuits were born. Yeah, get some of that 18th century gravy. Man, I love gravy. I don't care what century so it's from. It's a good band name too. So uh, the <laughs> problem with equity courts, even early on, is that 
there was really no um, kind of codified procedure for everything, mm-hmm. uh, especially as these cases got bigger and bigger uh, as far as people grouping up. There was no standard procedure. And one of the biggest challenges with that, or I guess biggest controversies, was whether or not people that weren't a part of that case technically, um, but were still a part of it because they had the wagon wheel made by the the local townsmith that was faulty, mm-hmm. whether or not they uh, signed up or not for that case, whether they were bound by that decision. Right. And it's a little counterintuitive to think about that, like, who cares if if Goody Smith isn't a part of this case? Maybe he doesn't care that his wagon wheel is faulty or not. But what this does, if you look at it on the other side, is Goody Smith can't, like, once they settle this thing, Goody Smith can't come along and then say, well, I want to see you separately. Right. So then Goody Smith couldn't come on, come around later, or I guess until they changed it, he could come around later and sue again. But they had to work all this out. They were like, that's not fair. You can't have this big civil case, have someone technically be a part of it, but not assigned to it, and then later on try and get their own separate damages. Right. So, but, but I mean, that's, I think, how it was for a good, uh, almost a century, a little over a century, where you could say, like, I didn't have anything to do with this thing. Goody, by the way, is short for good wife. So it's like Mrs. Smith. Well, I was just kidding around anyway. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but like the the, the ninth grade crucible reader uh, in me could not just let that pass. Remember that play? I do. I love it. Um, so the the thing is, like for a good century, like if you if even if you were considered somebody who would be a member of that class, if you hadn't signed on to this lawsuit, you could come back around and say, I didn't have anything to do with that. Like, I want to sue you myself. And that did kind of make things unwieldy because you, one of the purposes nowadays for filing a class action lawsuit, uh, at least as far as like the defendant, like say the big corporation is concerned, is to just settle this once and for all. And so eventually they came up with something called Rule 48, which um, started to kind of um, include, it was like the the birth of the rules for class action lawsuits. Um, and Rule 48 morphed into Rule 23. Rule 23, eventually in 1966, said, you know what, we're just going to say this. If you qualify as a member of a class action class, even if you have nothing to do with this, if you don't sign on, you're considered bound to the decision, which means if you, if like the the people suing these people lose, you can't go back and and sue them again and try yourself. You're bound by that decision. And in 1966, they said, well, how are we going to do this? And they said, well, we need to just notify people, give people the option to say, I don't want to have anything to do with the suit because I do want to sue these people on my own. And as long as you give them that option, the whole thing seems pretty fair. Yeah, uh, 1937 was when the Supreme Court first adopted these rules of civil procedure and the beginnings of Rule 23. Uh, and this is when they sort of just dissolved a lot of the separation uh, between the law courts and equity courts. But it was until 66 that they finally realized that was an issue. And they also, I mean, it's a pretty um, it's a pretty dense thing, Rule 23. There was a lot that went on. Yeah. Uh, and then that was amended again in 2005 with the Class Action Fairness Act, uh, which, among other things, said that, um, we're, you know, if it's over five million bucks, then this has got to go to federal court, right? Uh, federal district court, because that's too much money. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Another one of the things from the Fairness Act of 2005 is it laid out some other criteria aside from the five million bucks. Um, it said that any case involving uh, plaintiffs or defendants from a, like a bunch of different states, so if it's like all across the country, basically, yeah, and they call that diversity jurisdiction, then the federal court can actually uh, it has to go to federal court under that case. Right, and then also if it's a uh, hundred people or over, it typically. Uh, or a hundred, a hundred plaintiffs are over. It typically goes to federal court, and I get the impression federal courts just basically like we're a little more equipped for this, this the complexities and in- intricacies of a class action lawsuit. That's the impression I have. Do you? Yeah, I mean, I think they're just set up for it. Um, I imagine it would be tough for a state court to handle a case like Firestone, Bridgestone, with that many hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even millions. I don't know how many eventual plaintiffs there were, but that's a lot of tires. So I think that's true, but I also feel like this whole thing smacks of federal courts just basically being like, you know, let's just admit it, that state courts are (laughs) run by hayseeds and and yokels. That's what it smells like to me. There's definitely that undercurrent. Federal court rules, state court drools. (laughs) That's right. So, um... That Rule 23, which, again, is uh, very dense, as you said, but it's also ominous sounding, if you ask me. Rule 23 sounds like it's going to mess you up pretty good. Um, but it's basically the, the the body of understanding for class action lawsuits that's been established, you know, since the 30s up to 2005 with the Class Action Fairness Act, like you were saying. And if you read it, you can basically get a pretty good idea of what has to happen for a class action lawsuit to go forward. Um, apparently, each state has its own rules, but as far as the federal districts are concerned, um, Rule 23 is is it. And the first thing you have to do is you have to become certified as a class. Like your your lawsuit has to go from it's just me suing, you know, um, Exxon for the, the oil spill to I've got all these other neighbors and, and cannery owners around here who are all affected by this oil spill. Um, and we think we, we have a good case against Exxon. And very importantly, we all have the same kind of Harm. We have a common complaint, which is Exxon spilled a bunch of oil, messed up our livelihood and our lives. Um, and we all, you know, because we all have the same kind of case, the defense, Exxon, could mount the same defense against all of these complaints. So we would probably be certified as, as a uh, class. Yeah, like, you know, the common defense in the case of like Aaron Brockovich, that movie, I can't remember the name of the company that was the defendant, but the PG&E. defendant, who was it? Pacific Gas and Electricity, yeah, the one right. who keeps setting off wildfires out in California. So they couldn't then have a defense, um, one defense against like a certain number of people in, or a certain kind of person in town, let's say, right. it's probably more a- applicable. And then another for another kind of person in town. Yeah. They had to mount a common defense. It's basically, I think, all about equity uh, or making things equitable among right. kind of for both sides. Yeah, uh, which for I sure. thought was pretty interesting. Um, and only, you know, you have to get certified, and only 20 to 40% of lawsuits that are filed as class action even get certification to begin with. Yeah. And the reason um, that was lower than I thought, but it, I guess it also makes sense. Um, what I could not find is this, Chuck. What happens to the original lawsuit, the original plaintiff 
if they're not certified as a class or as a class action lawsuit. But you can go, probably just go sue on your own, I would imagine. I, I don't know. I cannot find out. And the, the way that I couldn't find out was um, the, the, the case that first piqued my interest about that was um, Dukes versus Walmart. I think it was Dukes et al. versus Walmart, which um, turned out to be the biggest class action class ever created. It consisted of one and a half million women who who had been employed. It's bigger than the U.S. military, by the way. But they were every woman who was employed by Walmart um, between, I think, uh, anytime after 1998. and the whole the whole uh, lawsuit was that Walmart was basically promoting men more quickly and giving men more resources to advance in, into management positions than women. And the idea was that if you were a woman, you were harmed by this uh, equally. So it made sense that 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 this would get certified as a uh, class action suit because any woman who worked for Walmart would have been harmed by not having the opportunity to advance. But then Walmart argued and said, well, you know. There's no national or company-wide policy that says you can't advance women, you can advance men more quickly, that all of these advancement decisions are made up of thousands and thousands of local decisions. So since there were so many different decisions that affected all these different women, this class doesn't make sense. And they actually won. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, Walmart's right, this is— this doesn't make sense as a, a class action suit because all of the harms could have been for different reasons carried out by different people. Um, but the reason that does make sense to have that that certification clause is because any defendant has a right to defend themselves against any accusation in court. And so if everybody's accusing them of the same harm, then it makes sense of certifying them together as a class. If there's different harms that aren't quite the same, then the defendant should be able to defend against that that accusation, that accusation, that accusation, and you shouldn't lump all those people together into a whole class. Right. So the judge is in charge of defining the class, uh, and like we said, it's got to you know it's got to be specific to the problem. Uh, at hand. It can't be all Bridgestone tire owners. It was, unless it's all Bridgestone tires, but it's, it turned out it was just this one tire on this one car. And so you have to really define that. Like if you had this car during these years, Mm -hmm. uh, then you are part of this class. Right. And um, from that point, it has the notification that we talked about has to take place, uh, whether it's, you know, you've seen TV commercials probably that have this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, you see advertisements in the newspaper. You probably get a mailer. It depends on how broad it is. Um, they're not going to do a TV commercial if they don't need to because that costs money, obviously, uh, and that's an expense. But they're going to notify everyone uh, pre- in pretty quick order because what they want is for everybody to know they're a part of this class that's a part of that class and whether mm-hmm. or not you want to opt in or out. Uh, and if you opt out, and you are within the scope of that class, you can you can do so if you want to. If it's, uh, I'm not sure why anyone for these like kind of small things that seem to happen a lot would opt mm-hmm. out. Right. Uh, I think they probably just count on people ignoring that kind of thing. Well, and getting yeah. Their, their check for five dollars in the mail. Sure. For but for literally not doing anything. Yeah, you can't opt out if you're. I don't know. If you're a person who's just like, I don't want my name on any list and I don't want to be a part of any, you know, if you're kind of a 
uh, paranoid type as far as the government and court cases go. You may want to opt out just to not be a part of something so small. Who knows? Well, the the I think the reason that they include it is because if you are some, let's say you were somebody who um, whose house was washed away by the oil spill at the, of the Exxon Valdez. Um, but the class action lawsuit was everyone who was affected by the oil. So it would include people whose houses lived or whose houses were a mile away, whose front yards got covered in oil. Well, you'd be like, wait a minute, whatever they're going to get is nothing like what I need, the damages that I'm seeking. So I'm going to opt out. Um, and because oh, sure. they can't, yeah. And because I mean, they there's can't, tons of real reasons to opt out. I'm talking right, right, about right. the $5 check coming from the credit card company. Sure. But I'm saying like they can't differentiate who's who's getting that mailer from who's not, which is why they put the onus on the person getting that mailer, seeing that TV commercial to say, oh, I, I need to opt out because I need to sue them on my own. I can't be part of this class. Because when that settlement is reached and they say everybody's going to get $5 for the for the trouble, um, that's what you got for your house being washed away. You of know course. what I mean? Yeah. So then uh, the judge is actually going to appoint the counsel, which is uh, different than how it usually works. Uh, the judge is going to look at this and say, um, and this is for, for uh, I think, for defense only, right? I guess the judge can change the plaintiff, but it's typically the lawyer who actually files the case. I think it's unusual for the judge to overrule that unless it's someone who just doesn't have the responsibility or maybe that kind of background. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think, like, if um, somebody walked in with the Johnson & Johnson complaint in the you know, the the lawyer was just like a local ambulance chaser. They probably would get replaced with like a larger national firm that had the resources or the understanding that had like contacts and like the um, um, uh, professional um, witness field as far as like medic medicine and cancer is concerned. Like that guy just wouldn't have the resources. So he might be changed. But yeah, I'm guessing it's probably rare. Um but the point is that the judge has the ability to decide who is the, the lawyer for the plaintiffs in the class action. Yeah, I think it's probably more rare because lawyers understand this and they probably wouldn't file if they knew that they would be replaced unless right. it's just to get it going and they know they're going to be replaced. Like in what was the Breaking Bad spin? Oh, Better Call Saul. When they, I think in like season two or something, when they figure out that the um, nursing home is taking advantage of the seniors overcharging them, like the first thing that Saul Saul did was go to the larger firm and say, like, we need to partner up uh, because he knew he couldn't handle it himself. That's what I'm guessing happens. Yeah. And then uh, I didn't see Better Call Saul, but that sounds right to me. Oh, you didn't? It's no. pretty good. It's not Breaking Bad, but it doesn't seek to be Breaking Bad. You know what I mean? Yeah, I've heard a lot of people like it better. but um, I could see that. It's a different it, show. It um, and then eventually the judge, and again, you know, if you haven't noticed, and it's sort of like in the early days, the judge has a lot of, a lot more say in class action cases than a lot of other kinds of cases. Uh, really making a lot of decisions that they don't get to decide in other kinds of cases. Uh, in this case, one of the final things they get to decide is the distribution of damages. Yeah. And they... You know, they use other people for insight. They develop a plan with people on their team. But they develop this plan to distribute whatever monetary damages. If it's, you know, $3 billion, they're going to figure out 
how to approve that settlement and how to distribute that settlement, including, and this is a very key thing, uh, as we'll see later, including how much those attorneys are going to get paid. Right. Um, so you want to take a break and then come back and talk about some of the advantages and disadvantages of uh, class action suits? Yeah, let's do it. So one of the big advantages, obviously, is something we already mentioned. Um, a lot of people, there's power in numbers. A lot of people is more significant than one person. And a lot of people pooling their resources is more significant. Um, yep. Lawsuits cost a lot of money. And in many, many cases, it is not worth it for someone to go after a company for you know, you kind of just have to do the math. Like, how much is this going to cost me? What's a potential payout? Is it worth the risk? Whereas if you can band together with a bunch of other people, it's a huge, huge advantage. Right. And one of the other advantages is um, the more people you have, the more damages are going to be awarded if the plaintiffs win, which means you're going to start attracting increasingly higher caliber lawyers to your cause who could be your your um, class counsel. And the reason why is because in cases where you're seeking damages, lawyers often don't get paid unless they win. But if you win, then the lawyers get a big fat payday out of it. So the bigger the class, the better the law firm um, or legal team representing that class is probably going to be at least more experienced, you know? Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, another huge advantage is is that you're going to get your case heard. Uh, if in individual cases, they go first come, first serve. So if an individual brings a big lawsuit and they win, that company might be out of business before you can even get your suit going. Right. And if you're part of a class action lawsuit, it's going to make sure that everybody gets their piece of the pie, basically. Exactly. So um, there's a lot of reasons to do this. Another one, too, is it makes sense for um, – corporations, they have an incentive to uh, try to settle uh, fairly with a class action suit because it will handle, it'll make this big years-long, sometimes decade-long problems um, go away finally, once and for all. Yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of press that comes along with a class action suit. Yeah. Uh, far more press than than an individual case. So it definitely behooves the defense to try and get these things wrapped up quickly because it's just bad news for them. Yeah, and, and on the same on the other side of that same coin, Chuck, like that large amount of press that gets generated by these big, big cases also kind of keeps corporate malfeasance in line. You know, sure it, it, it does. makes the company <laughs> it it probably does more than if we didn't have such things as class action suits. But that's one of the theoretical byproducts. How about that? Yeah, I got some property to show you here. <laughs> it's a, is it called the Brooklyn Bridge? It's, yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> so um, there are some problems with class action suits. They're not the, the candy land that we've described them as entirely. <laughs> um, instead, there's, there's a lot of um, frivolous class action suits that have been filed over the years um, by lawyers who are looking to make a fast buck, in part using that bad press as a threat. 
Like, do you really want this to, to be, you know, to get dragged out in court? Just go ahead and settle. And, you know, I'm the lawyer. I'll take my big fat cut. Um, and that's a that's a big problem, actually. And that's a big perceived problem, too, that class uh, class counsel walk away, you know, whistling and laughing all the way to the bank while the individual members are just getting five bucks for their for their problems, even though they're the ones who had the thing befall them in the first place. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, if you choose, like, let's use that Exxon uh, example. If you get bad legal advice uh, and your house was destroyed more than other people's property mm-hmm. and you don't opt out, you can't then say, oh, well, you know, I only got this much. My whole house was destroyed. I really want to bring a lawsuit again. Yeah. You can't do that no. uh, unless you opt out. So that is a disadvantage that you – that's sort of your one shot basically at any uh, compensation. Yeah, I think the rule of thumb is if you didn't even know that this wrong had befallen you, it's probably not that big of a deal and you're not going to want to opt out because then that means you have to hire your own lawyer and go through the – trouble of suing somebody, which is never yeah. pleasant or fun. Totally. Um, so like I was saying, like those those class lawyers are a favorite target of tort reformists and critics because um, the the if the plaintiffs win and the judge rules in the plaintiff's favor, one of the things the judge will do is figure out what the compensation is for the lawyer uh, is going to be. A lot of times that comes out of the settlement, right? Like if everybody gets... $10 billion, the judge will say, well, you, attorney uh, who led this case in your law firm and your legal team, you're going to get this fee. And I was reading up on it, and it sounds like it's fairly arbitrary. There's no good rule of thumb. And in fact, lawyers who represent class actions um, may actually get a lower percentage fee than they would if they were representing somebody on an individual basis. But the thing is, these payouts can be so huge that even if it's a really small percentage, it's going to be just this incredibly large amount in real numbers. And so a lot of people are like, that guy didn't earn that. They didn't They didn't deserve that, especially when they find out that, you know, a million people got a coupon for half of a free tire from Firestone for having deadly tires on their car for 10 years. Yeah, those are uh, – and they, you know, they tried to um – they tried to rectify that in part of the the CAFA, the Class Action Fairness Act of 2005, mm-hmm. with these coupon settlements. Those really rubbed me the wrong way. Um, it wasn't a class action suit, but there was something involved. At one point, I was a season ticket holder for the Atlanta Falcons. Ooh. And I can't remember what the deal was now. It wasn't a class action suit, but there was something to where they wronged the season ticket holders in some financial way terrible playing <laughs> yeah we should have run a class action suit <laughs> right for the past 35 years those north uh, georgia people would join it <laughs> yeah exactly but they um they did a, that coupon thing and they were like well because of whatever it was this upcoming season you'll uh season ticket holders will get 25 percent off anything from the falcons merch store oh no and that just really rubbed me it's like because they're just you're spending more like the people that fall for that right are just giving them even more money that's a big criticism is that it 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 is it establishes or keeps established an ongoing uh commercial relationship between the person who wronged you and you the person suing them uh and that is a big criticism some people say a, a good re- a good reply to that is just have cash settlements or um you could have a whole product 
settlement. Like um, rather than you having a coupon for some percentage off so you still have to give them money, they say, we'll give you the jersey of your choice free and clear and you never (laughs) have to see us again. Or maybe even like from the NFL.com store. It doesn't even have to be like a a Falcons jersey. That's a solution to that too. (laughs) But one of the big problems was lawyers who were representing these coupon cases, um, they were taking a percentage of the entire value of the coupons. Of all the coupons. Right. And so what CAFA in 2005 or six sought to change was saying, like, you really shouldn't do that because a lot of people don't actually redeem that. So you shouldn't get a percentage of the people's coupons who are never going to redeem that coupon. You should get a portion of the coupons that are going to be redeemed. And that is just as hard, figuring out how many coupons are going to be redeemed is as hard as it sounds, from what I understand. Yeah, and this, uh, there's one case in 2013 that you sent over that was pretty interesting. Uh, There was a teenager, um, his name was That Guy, who measured his Subway sandwich, his foot long. Wait, he was Australian, so say it in Australian. (laughs) He was That Guy. Nice. Uh, and he measured his foot long, and it was only 11 inches long, and he took it to uh, attorney Jackie Childs, <laughs> and then Jackie Childs didn't take the case, and so the kid went away. And then another kid measured his sandwich, mm-hmm. and his name was, well, actually, <laughs> and he actually got this thing taken to court because he didn't have a 12-inch sub right. on his from his Subway sandwich. It, it baked up a little bit short. Yes, and, and that was an actual case. I'm, of course, I'm kidding around about those names, but um, although I wish I wasn't, uh, the attorneys there were going to get over a half a million dollars in fees right. for what ended up being no payout whatsoever, just Subway saying, we'll, we'll make these things bake up to 12 inches now. Well, Subway even said, we can't guarantee that. We cannot. They're like, bread doesn't bake in exactly the same way. It's just, that's not how it works. And the court even tended to agree with that. But the point was, no one was going to get anything. Not even like a free six-inch sub. Nothing. (laughs) A free inch. (laughs) Yeah. Not even a free inch. You were just going to get, you know, Subway will stay in business. But these lawyers were going to get a half a million dollars. And the judge is like, you know what, forget this. We're just going to dismiss this entire case. That's right. Jackie Childs. Uh, was very disappointed. There was also a similar um, a similar one when when the Center for Science and the Public Interest hired some lawyers to sue Coca Cola, who owned Vitamin Water at the time. And Vitamin Water used to have this hilarious ad campaign where it promised all these ridiculous health benefits that any reasonable person knew were not true, and they weren't suing for that. They were actually suing because uh, Vitamin Water didn't disclose how much sugar it had in it. Um, even though it was ridiculous health claims, it was still kind of purporting to be healthy. And these, uh, the Center for the um, Science and the Public Interest was like, this is not healthy at all. And so they sued. Coca-Cola didn't do anything but stopped, I think, advertising the way that they were. But those lawyers still got $2.73 million in fees, even though no one else got anything. 32 grams of sugar in vitamin water. Yeah, I believe Isn't it. crazy? Tastes delicious. I don't. I don't. I didn't know it had sugar in it. That's. I'm offended. Yeah, that's why they got sued. Uh, and you know there have been some very famous civil uh, class action suits over the years. The largest ever, obviously, uh, were the tobacco settlements. Yeah. And that was by tenfold uh, next to the second highest one, tobacco settlements. And I don't think it's over yet. Even um, two hundred and six billion dollars so far. 
Yeah. Uh, from that 1998 decision, 46 states, uh, the attorney generals from 46 states were involved. Uh, and they obviously couldn't pay that out all at once. But what they were ordered to do was um, pay out for medical costs for smoking-related illness over the course of 25 years. Yeah. Um, the next highest was the BP spill for $20 billion. Wow. Uh, Volkswagen comes in at number three with $14.7 billion. And that one was pretty significant in that it wasn't a coupon payout. It was it was a pretty good restitution, I think, uh, in that they said, you know what, we will actually buy back. We'll fix your car for nothing, or we will buy back your car or end your lease with no penalty. Right. Uh, and this is when Volkswagen cheated the software <laughs> to try and cheat uh, U.S. emissions tests. Big, Which big scandal. So wrong. It was a big scandal. Um, there's plenty that are still like unfolding as we speak, like the Johnson & Johnson talcum powder one. Um, if you watch Svengooli or anything else on MeTV, you're probably well-versed well in um, the Boy Scout of America um, sex abuse case that's ongoing. Yeah. Apparently, the like, brother was one of the first plaintiffs in that case. Oh, I think I remember you talking yeah. about that. Yeah. Now there's like 70,000 members of that wow. class and growing. Um, and then there's, if you've ever heard um, that ad for Mesobook, that's actually a, a mesothelioma guide that you will get sent to you by uh, the lawyer of that class action um, s- settlement uh, who's still looking for plaintiffs. Um, from, against the asbestos manufacturers. So there's still plenty ongoing. Like now that we've talked about this, it'll be like that Bider-Meinhof thing where you, you'll see class action ads on TV all the time now. Yeah. I mean, there uh, Enron was a big one. Uh, remember FinFin, the diet drug? Oh, yeah. That was a big one. That was a $3.8 billion uh, payout. Um, the silicon breast implants, that was a big payout. Yes, but that one, from what I understand, was total BS. It was it was based on medical hysteria, and later science backed up the company's claims that they had nothing to do with, I think it was connective tissue disorder. Oh, interesting. Um, the science, nobody was carrying out the science. It was all basically paid testimony for the plaintiffs um, who were not necessarily even scientists. And the, the, on the other side, nobody had any science, and then science came later on, but it was after the settlement had been reached for billions wow. of dollars. Did they so that one was a bit back? of a scam, it turns out. Did they get it back? I don't, I don't think so. Probably not. That's not how it works. I don't think so. A reverse class anything? action suit. <laughs> right. <laughs> they, yeah, it's Walmart one company sue suing <laughs> millions of people. <laughs> you got anything else? I got nothing else. All right. Well, if you want to know more about class action lawsuits, just watch MeTV. Uh, and since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Uh, hey, guys, this is another coincidence email. And this one, you know, we get a lot of these like, hey, I was listening to the show when uh, there was a tornado near me or whatever mm-hmm. on tornadoes. But I thought this one was special. Uh, hey, guys, uh, I was listening to the Fort Knox episode in the listener letter about wetlands. And having to be a, happening to be at a wetland, I might share, I've had two very random coincidental things. A few years back, I was driving into the small town, uh, into a small town in southwest Colorado where I live, and one of you mentioned a penny farthing. <laughs> uh, if you don't know what a penny farthing is, uh, dear listener, it is the, the bicycle with that giant, giant front wheel and the tiny little back wheel mm-hmm. from the, well, I mean, were those 19th century, I guess? Yeah, early 20th, one of the two. Um... <laughs> 
I glanced <laughs> over to the bike lane, and sure enough, there was a guy riding a penny farthing. <laughs> that is that is the most amazing thing I've heard in a long time. I've never seen one in real life, even. I don't think I have. I think I've seen like an antique in the store or something like that, but I've never seen somebody riding. Although, this would not be nearly as amazing if the person turns out to be riding from Brooklyn. <laughs> Because I'm sure that's a pretty common sight. From Brooklyn to uh, Colorado, that'd be something else. Yeah, I guess so. But what are the chances this guy's listening to that? That's amazing. That's a, it is astounding. And uh, I mean, why were we even talking about penny farthings in the first place, know. you know? It's a good word. Sure. Uh, it was the first time I had seen one of those in that town. I've lived in for 25 years. Uh, next was this summer. After dropping off some clients to put on your episode about ice climbing, just as I was driving out of town uh, to a to a Mecca destination for ice climbers around mm. the world. It's wow. a little less impressive. I like that sure. farthing. Yeah, I do too. Uh, and that is from Sean in Telluride, Colorado. Very nice, Sean. Thank you for the first anecdote. The second one, thanks Man. for nothing. <laughs> uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Sean did and tell us your best anecdote, we want to hear it. Um, you can get in touch with us via email at stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.